Hey listeners, Cass here. I'd like to take a second to dedicate this episode to my late father, who you may or may not have known passed in October of last year. And as the anniversary is coming up and eagerly coming out right around the time of my debut horror novella, The Caretaker's Release, which is also a book about grief and ghosts and the pain that we carry and all of that, I've decided to share a little bit more of this part of my life and have included a clip of one of the last conversations I've had with my dad as a way to immortalize him. Thank you for trusting me with your ears. And here's a, a piece of him that I'd like to share with you all. So I would like treating you. <laughs> it's good. Um, I got a I got a new job as an editor. You got a new job as an editor, huh? I guess that's fun enough to realize the fact that you are capable. <laughs> I hope so. Well, I wanted to say that I missed you and I loved you. Good, because I miss you and love you too. <laughs> um, I also wanted to let you know that um, me and my boyfriend, Chris, that you met before. It's just been a while since we visited. We got engaged. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. We're very happy. That's, that's a very, very important part of it. If you, if you get engaged and you, you don't have fun, We get along really well. Um, you met him a couple times before, but it's just been a while yeah. since you've seen him. So he wanted to yeah. say that he missed you. And you tell him I missed him too. You tell him he's a, a good guy, and good guys keep next year as much as you can. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to take care of mom today? Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to hang out with her and watch the movies? Yep. That sounds like a plan. Good. <laughs> I miss you. I miss you too, Dad. <clears throat> and you take care of yourself until the next time I see you. Yeah, I promise I will. Okay, I'll give this back to Mom again. Alright, love Hold you. On. I love you too. gals, ghouls, and badass days of the world. I'm your co-host, Ryan C. Bradley, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Cass Clark. But unlike usual, as you're hearing with me doing the introduction, they're in the interviewee chair today. We're going to be talking about their book, The Caretaker. Welcome, Cass, and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's very exciting. A little nerve-wracking, but I think that I'm in good hands. I couldn't be more excited to be talking about your book with you today. I've read it twice now on listeners. This one is one you're not gonna to wanna to miss. But before we get into it, let me give you all a brief introduction to Cass who you've been listening to hopefully every month for the last two years almost. Along with being a co-host here of this here Horror Hangover podcast, the immensely talented Cass Clark is the senior news lead editor for Looper. Before that, they were a features editor and a writer for Slash Film. You can find their personal essays in Electric Literature, Den of Geek, among others, and their short fiction and Heavy Feather Review, Catapult, and others. We've been friends for more than a decade, and I couldn't be more excited, as I said earlier, for their first book to be dropping from Here is Scream Press. So a little bit about The Caretaker before we start talking with Cass. It's the story of Kara, a nurse who's recently lost her mother. Hospice can't come to take away the, her mother's deathbed, and it turns out it's got a little more than emotional baggage connected to it. 
<laughs> That's a great way to put it. Yes, it is a cursed object slash haunted object. Very cool. So before we really get started, the first question I have for you, Cass, because The Caretaker is a deeply personal book, something I know from knowing you and having being reading it as you wrote it. Are there things you want to keep off limits as we discuss it? So just want to make sure we have some healthy boundaries here. Yeah, I feel like I'm pretty pretty much an open book, but I'm bump. But if it ever feels like it's staring into a direction where I'm like, yeah, I'd rather not, I will definitely let you know. Thank you. The last three years or so, you've had kind of a meteoric rise as a horror journalist, writing for some of the best in print, Rue Morgue, and online, Fangoria, Dread Central, among many, many others we've already mentioned. You're also, for my money, the best interviewer doing it because the way you get your subjects comfortable enough to be truly vulnerable. Like, I'd never expect to hear Mark Hamill talk to someone about imposter syndrome. <laughs> and you got that out of him in an interview, which is amazing. And so Thank I'm curious, you. how has your work as a journalist influenced your fiction? Oh, that's a great question. I would say that I think as a side, as, as a sidestep to the interviewer part of that question, because I do think there's something there too that definitely helps fiction. But um, as far as just like the nitty gritty journalism day in, day out work, I think it just helps to be a bit more like in love with direct sentences, direct statements, like being comfortable with not just killing your darlings. I hate that saying, but the idea that you want your text to say what you want it to say. And I think a lot of, uh, especially in journalism, like you can, you can have fun ways of, of phrasing an interview or like a review. Like sometimes when I do reviews, I will embed a little bit of like personal essay, like uh, stylistic things to flow into whatever piece I'm talking about, if it feels right. But I think at the end of the day, it's really just about trusting your language and getting it as like concise as possible. Like I think the hardest thing in the world, like even harder than writing a book, I think is writing a concise, engaging, indirect headline. Like I think people underestimate how long it takes to really get good at crafting a good headline. And I think it's just because it's like all of journalism boiled down in a nutshell where it's like, how can I get this to say what I mean in a way that like people want to read it and that it's like, clear and it's concise and it's uh, not misleading. And so it just teaches your brain to work in a bit more of a critical and logical way so that when you do approach fiction, I feel as if I feel a little bit less precious with about like what has to stay and, and what can go. Because if I think something I'm writing is getting in the way of whatever story I'm telling, I feel a little bit less hesitant to strike something i feel like if anything sometimes it, it causes me to err on the other side where i'm like this whole thing can go like goodbye <laughs> what about as an interviewer that's a fascinating one because i feel like it still doesn't quite hit me like i i've seen like i've seen my interviews before and like obviously like i've had to transcribe them and it's still kind of just an out of body experience thinking about stuff like that. Like I love Elvira and the fact that I've gotten to talk to her twice and that I got to joke with her about Mark Hamill is just still just doesn't feel real. Uh, and I have those audio clips on my laptop. So whenever I'm feeling like an imposter, I can be like, well, maybe I just want to hear Elvira like complain with me about how no one says her name right. Like, isn't that nice? Like <laughs> that's a nice gift. But I think my favorite thing about it is I've seen people on like varying levels of quote unquote success or comfort within their success. So everything from like someone like, yes, like a, an icon like Elvira or Mark Hamill, or even like Joseph Gordon-Levitt or Kristen Chenoweth, um, who's some of my favorite chats with those people. But I've also seen people like, you know, like Toby Poser in the Adams Family films and, you know, burgeoning directors and writers of like indie horror. And I feel like at the end of the day, 
there's just something about like, it's just you talking to someone else on the other side of the microphone. And they're just a person trying to do this art thing. They don't know if it will work. That is like a good motivator for like, not only curing your own imposter syndrome to be like the end of the day, we're just making weird shit and we hope it works, but we're never really truly confident it does. And we're just trying to do it. And then also uh, writing characters just to be like, at the end of the day, like, what's the way you can make this person feel the most human? And I think the more and more you do interviews, the more you just see how like everyone's vulnerable. Everyone's a little weird. Everyone has like a face they put on and a mask that they put on. And hopefully if you're having a really good interview experience, the mask drops a little bit. And so does yours during the interview. And then you just feel like you're just having a chat with someone that you've been friends with for a very long time. And so I try to do that. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. But thank you very much for your compliment. I am hopefully that answered the question. <laughs> it did. It did. We're going to get a little more into your book, The Caretaker. Yeah. So grief is very much the center of this novella, but it's kind of an adult complex grief. I think you best sum it up when Kara says, can you imagine how it feels to still love her about her mother? So my question is, were you writing for audiences that have dealt with this kind of grief before, or you have more in mind people who hadn't? And what did you want your preferred audience to take away from The Caretaker? There are times when you're writing where you're strategically doing something, but it's very much on a subconscious level. And I think for this book, I was writing it from the perspective of not only like processing like my own grief and and using this like fantastical story to get out some of my own demons and fears and guilts and, and, and whatnot. Um but when you're when you're when you're grieving, there's just this like frustration of like nobody understands exactly what you're going through unless people have been in like very similar situations before. And so there's just like communication disconnect that's really frustrating. So I think even if I had an intended to, I think this book would definitely be subconsciously and, and consciously written for people who've experienced the loss of a parent or a very, very close person to them to them in their life that they have a complicated relation with passing and just how to deal with that. I think that was really like the driving force where like, I'm not going to slow down and stop and explain this. Things are messy. We're going to keep chugging along and it's going to get horrific as we go by. And I think hopefully the people that connect to that are people that like have felt that disconnect but hopefully by the end of the story they feel a little bit more at, at peace with knowing they're not alone in that feeling the horror and grief have long gone together is there something about the horror genre that you feel makes it so well equipped to address this particular topic oh absolutely i mean i, I feel like lately i've been hearing a lot of people especially on the horror twitter just being like oh my god another trauma narrative and it's like i get it i get it but at the end of the day can you say that there has ever been a horror story written that's not informed by trauma like any kind of trauma like even if it's something as small as like a high school slasher teen flick that's about just being ostracized and not being a part of the cool kid club like even that is its own kind of social trauma it lets you get out the things that you can't quite do in day-to-day -day life like you can you can't just go around like axing people that piss you off or you can't just like go around like screaming into an abyss i think it just lets you have an avenue to really get out those messy feelings i think if people looked hard enough at horror that like at the end of the day like every horror tale whether it's silly or not like like as far as like tone or whatever you're dealing with like it's always going to be dealing with mortality um so i think it's kind of like impossible to not find a little bit of grief in horror so i feel like for me it's like people complain about writing stories about grief into horror where it's like the grief has always come first. Like being a human is a grieving experience. And so we tell stories about that through horror, but it's kind of always been there. Like, I really do think it's 
it's kind of impossible to not tackle grief in any horror that you're writing. Um, I, th- I do think that sometimes people sensationalize it, which is why I'm not a fan of movies like Hereditary or maybe like Under the Skin or things that are like uh, that version of A24, super bleak, you know, there's no way out, good luck kind of vibe. Like I'm very much an existentialist over here. So I'm just like, oh, you know what? Like if things suck, go do something different and just see what happens. And I, I kind of find that um, horror stories or horror films that let people live through the horror and not necessarily be like destroyed by the end of it are actually scarier for me. Like I think those hit home more. Mm. Like I feel like the ending of um, Joko Anwar's Satan's Slave is actually like a great example of that. Where like everything same thing with Queen of Black Magic, where everything seems okay, but at the end of the day, there's still a glimmer that like there's more horror out there. There's more like things to unpack. You can't really run away from like intergenerational trauma is just stuff that you carry with you like cobweb that just came out is a great example i think that did that in a very concise like dark fairy tale way of just being like uh it doesn't have to be like big and sensationalized it can just be something as like haunting as a thought um of stuff that you have to carry with you in addition to being about grief the caretaker is also very funny for example okay. at one point kara's cousin dylan accuses kara's ex bath of using the web MD of ghost hunting which absolutely cracked me up how did you thread that needle in between humor and grief? Uh, I think that's just something that I feel like the story needed. Cause I think that um, at least for me, like, especially in like really like sad or dark times, I think I love to use humor as like a deflection tool, but also as just like a way to just kind of get through it. And I think that that's actually pretty real to life. Like I, I remember I was texting about this, but uh, this isn't in the book, but I remember one time I was at a funeral when I was like maybe 12 or so. And my uncle was there and people were just so somber and it was so uncomfortable that for whatever reason, my uncle like took off his shoe and playfully threw a shoe at me. And I just cracked up in the entire funeral home. <laughs> and then my aunt just like sent me the like dirtiest glare. Uh, but like, it's, it's one of those things where like, you know, you're still here, you're still alive. Like, what do you do with that? It's kind of, it kind of feels impossible. And like, I don't know. I think the, the joking about it is natural. And so I'm I'm happy that that was funny. I think it also just, I like Dylan just being kind of the comic relief, just like grounding force for the story. So I'm happy it made you laugh. Yeah. Another question about Dylan, because cousin relationships aren't often in fiction. What inspired you to have Kara and Dylan's friendship be so centered in the novella? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so it was sort of a little bit based in real life, not quite, but when I was conceiving this of this novella, uh, my father had passed away uh, last October. So October 7, 2022. And as as those things happen, like, you know, extended family will always show up and you're like, oh, geez, like people that, like, there's a joke in the, in the novella that a little bit of me is in that line where it's just like, oh, like relatives you only see at like weddings, funerals, and like baby showers or whatever. Like there's just those people that are just like tangential, um, but they always feel like when those events happen, I don't know, like they act as if there's just like gravitas to, to your relationship where you're like, well, I mean, I've been here like every Monday through like Sunday, like where have you been? Yeah. Um, and at the, you know what I mean? Like that, that kind of thing. You're like, oh, nice showing up now. But I, at my funeral, I had a cousin who I hadn't talked to in a really long time, but it was someone who had also lost his father when, when he was a lot younger than I was, but just like the way that he looked at me, the way that he treated me, I could tell he understood in a level that I couldn't communicate really. So there's that line about the bear hug. Like I remember like stepping out of my dad's 
a funeral mass and like he gave me this like big hug and it just like settled me and then uh we didn't really talk too too much but like in the months after that he would just check on check in on me certain times and it was really nice just to have someone who'd been through that just like like checking in on how I was dealing with that but I think that inspired like what I think everyone really craves when you're in the grieving process. Like what if there was someone that no matter what weird stuff you did, like even if you like wrote them into like a haunted hospice bed and like bloody shenanigans, like that they will still be by your side, like through thick, thick and thin. So he's like the idolized version of like, you're like ride or die person. Um, and, I, and I think that a lot of people that are like only, like I'm an only child. And I feel like when you're only child, like cousins are, are the closest you get to siblings. And sometimes those relationships are only in childhood and sometimes they last a bit longer. Uh, and so I love the idea that like, you have a really strong like cousin kinship to see you through. And it's also like, I'm like half Irish Catholic. And I feel like cousins are like, it's, it's just like a thing I can't quite explain, but like we, we treat cousins very like much like siblings. Mm. That's where that idea came from. And I just love the idea that like there's someone for Kara that can really call her on her shit. And I think that helped to make things not too bleak. So like, again, I didn't want to make the story too bleak or too dark. And so I hopefully think that he threads a good line between like the humor and then also just like showing like how like a good support system can get you through the strangest of night, but like you have to have that to get through it. Absolutely. And do the characters absolutely pop off the page. Are there any plans for future stories about both starring Dylan and Kara? I'm not sure at this point. I was toying with a screenplay idea for it. And I had been uh, messaging with someone who does a podcast about possibly doing something with that. So that is a TBD project i've been thinking a lot about maybe pursuing that but i also want to sit in a bit longer because i feel like dylan and kara i just love them so much and i i kind of hate that like dylan gets like scouted off screen for like a lot of the story and i wish that i could have more dylan time but it just didn't feel right for this one story so there's a small part of me that thinks like there could be not necessarily a sequel but i think there's something interesting with the idea of like at the end of the book there's a little callback to something that happens to Dylan earlier in the story. And I think it'd be interesting to explore his grief that we don't actually get time to see because they're so busy being wrapped up in Kara's story that it might be interesting to revisit Dylan's story and have Kara be kind of a supporting player, so to speak. But maybe, I don't know. That would be very cool. I think I know the detail you're talking about. I don't want to spoil it for our listeners, but it would be very cool. So we've kind of been circling this. This is a very raw book written, as you said, in the months after your father's passing, I know you're recording, you're recording a tribute to him with recorded conversations at the beginning of the episode. So as you were writing, did you have strategies to cope with that kind of, because you're digging into your grief, did you have strategies to keep yourself safe and work through that? It was more like I felt like the writing was like an exorcism for myself because I feel like what surprised me was after he died, I, I started getting like night terrors again. I was I used to get I mean, I hadn't really had really bad nightmares like since I was a kid, but I would start getting like just weird, weird ass like nightmares and I would get uh, sleep paralysis. And I don't know if you've ever experienced it. And I think That's I might've talked. Yeah. It's really awful. Cause you feel like you can't move. And sometimes you do like, there'd be some times where I legitimately thought like 
it looked like there was, cause you're half sleep, half waking. And sometimes it can get into your brain as well. So like your brain might be half asleep. So you might think you're seeing like a black cloud coming in to suffocate you, but you're kind of actually dreaming, but your part of your body can move. It's, it's really uncomfortable. So like between like the sleep paralysis and like the night terrors, I just felt like there was like quite literally all this like darkness in me that I needed to get out of me. And so I actually felt like it felt a bit more, yeah, like, like exorcism and like exercise, like the more I wrote it out, the more I felt like it came out of me and it turned into something else. And then it gave it a different voice. And then like my nightmare stopped, my sleep paralysis stopped. Really? That's awesome. Yeah. So Kara's nursing experiences often inform the more horrific scenes. How did you research to make sure you were getting those things right? I have a very uncomfortable Google search history now, like most horror. <laughs> but yeah, I think I feel like the big thing was like I think some some of it was from like personal experience. Like I like a lot of the like body horror that comes up. Like I have a, a bit about like ears that comes up at the at the point where she's getting tortured with her eardrums. And that was something where like I had had like a lot of ear trauma as a kid and like was like hard of hearing for for like the short time period of, up until I was like maybe around 10 or so. Cause I had all these like ear operations and stuff. So some of that was definitely from like I remember being versed like when you're when you have certain things like quote unquote wrong with you, like you get versed very quickly in clinical terms because you're like, okay, are we going to do this procedure again or that procedure? So like some of the body horror stuff that's a bit more clinical, definitely more, more likely from personal experience. But in real life, my mom was actually, well, she's still a nurse. She does like different kind of nursing now. She worked in like geriatrics for like 30 years or something. It's like one of the real life details is like when she was testing for like her CNA license and RNA license, like I actually did have like cue cards with her and I did actually help her with terms and stuff. The joke in our household when I was younger was that like I was going to be a little doctor because I would just, it was just so normal to me to be saying things like sutures and just being like, do you have like your hydrocortisone cream in case like a rash flares up? Like it was just normal. And I feel like kids of kids of nurses are like that a lot. Like you can almost pick them out in a crowd sometimes. Like I've, I've met and I have some friends that have parents who are nurses and you can definitely tell it's just like, there's just a little bit of like vigilance and just like, <laughs> it just gives like such like uh boy scout vibes right where they have like the, their backpack on like i'm ready yeah. i got like all the pre- everything prepared you're married to a doctor i'm sure i'm sure she has some ticks too <laughs> i haven't picked up on them but yeah. do, you, do you carry a first aid kit i carry like tweezers and like like hand sanitizers and like some backup stuff like i always have like dramamine on me and like <laughs> Yeah. So like sometimes yeah, if I'm traveling for sure, I'll have like a little, little kit just in case. Are you carrying the Dramamine for you or for some other person who may or may not get motion sick? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's like, fascinating to me. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I, I think it's also like, I'm someone who like, uh, like I am first aid certified. I don't need to yeah. be, I just like it. I like the idea that like, if I needed to be, or if I needed to care, I could take care of it. But yeah, I remember like, oh, speaking of fingers finger horror there's a bit of finger horror in this book but i remember when um 
a couple of months ago, I dislocated my finger and it like threw off my whole like work schedule, but I like had to teach Chris like how to bandage a dislocated like finger and stuff. Um, so I try to keep up to date with that stuff. I actually find it fascinating. I do think if it wasn't the years it takes to be a doctor or nurse um, and all the math calculations that are terrifying to me, I do think that medical fields are fascinating. Mm. So I don't, I think a lot of it is just like accumulated interest and just like, I guess, weird fixation on that kind of stuff. But the more like, like the, the one thing that was a big point that I wasn't sure about, but ended up not being a huge deal anyway, was when one of the characters get pretty severe head trauma, just the way of how to deal with that scene. I wanted to make sure it was accurate because I feel like a lot of the time people in horror get there, like they get banged up a bunch and like, it doesn't, this book is definitely not realistic, but I wanted some realism to it. So it's not like you know, like scream, uh, we, we love her, but like scream six where you're just being like horribly gutted and you're like, okay, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it works. Is there anything you wished I had asked you in this interview that I haven't? Ooh, something I'm just curious about. Cause it's something that like, it's also funny because I've asked this exact question. I know that you actually like took this one for me because I ask it all the time in my interviews. <laughs> um, but I, it's always funny because like, I used to always ask in interviews, like, what do you, what do you hope people took away from this? And then after a certain point, I like canned that question from interviewing. And I started getting like almost the same response all the time. They're like, I have no control over what the audience takes from this. So I can't dumb to hope for it. Um, Which I was like, that's a great point. However, like what would always surprise me is when like whatever level of creative person they were, when they would be like, I want to hear your reaction. And you're like, oh, I'm just a person. They're like, but no, I, I spent so many hours into this. (laughs) Like, please tell me what your reaction is. I'm very curious. Um, so I would say that I'm curious for like, how did you feel when you finished the book? So when I was writing for Wicked Horror, I used to have to do interviews and reviews in the same movie. And I'm glad no one asked because I would like, I would like the people, but the movie yeah. wasn't always great. Um, in this right. case, I think the caretaker was great. I feel like there's a good sense of catharsis in the ending. And it's not like everything's tied up neatly, which I like. I feel like it's more real when it's not tied up too neatly. I, mean, I don't want to spoil it. I feel like I'm like kind of hamstrung to, to answer completely honestly without giving spoilers. But I think it's working really well. And I think I've read, I read two versions. I think the epilogue wasn't in the first version I read. Mm. I think the epilogue adds a whole ton to the story in a very cool way. And it's very cool to see the characters after everything that's happened to see them existing in their their new forms reshaped by grief but also reshaped by the the crucible they went through because of this fucking hospital bed well maybe it's the hospital bed maybe it's the the other stuff that's going on that seems to be linked to the hospital bed it's hard to say what's the action it's kind of ambiguous yes i think the ending is great i think the story is great i think all of our listeners should pre-order it, buy it now, give cats all of your money. They deserve it. Yeah, I think people are really going to love this book, though. I think people are going to get excited for it. Cool. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, listeners, for listening. I have a head cold, so I hopefully answered questions, right? Ryan might cut this, but if he doesn't cut it, I appreciate uh, your patience with my nasally voice. <laughs> yes. Um, I was going to say earlier, um, <laughs> Cassidy is the head cold and oh. is also one of the toughest people I know. When they broke their fingers, as I mentioned earlier, they were texting me like every day being like, I just want to work out again. I wish my fingers weren't broken so I could work out again. It wasn't like that I'm in pain. It was like, I just want to work out and my fingers are broken. That was the hard part for them, I think. Not the pain, but the, 
Yeah, it was hard. Having I also, to sit. <laughs> just because I feel like a lot of journalism stuff sometimes gets like glossed over. The funniest thing for me was when like I had a broken finger and people were still like asking about deadlines or like co- like coverage and stuff. And I'm just like, my finger is dislocated. I, I and I, it was my right finger too, and I'm right handed, so I was like, it's gonna take some time. And like it'd be like two days later, like so about that coverage, I'd be like, I am doing my best typing with one hand. <laughs> It was, oh man. It's the unglamorous side for you, I promise. A lot of horror journalism is a lot of not glamour (laughs) and a lot of dislocated fingers, apparently. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Um, Tune in next time when we're going to talk to someone about something. We will have more episodes in the future. It'll be a surprise. (laughs) It's a surprise to us, too, (laughs) listeners.